Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Cheat Codes, a Sickle Cell Podcast. Dr. Mike, I am happy to be back from London. That yeah, was a great trip. Yeah, we were at the annual Academy of Sickle Cell and Thalassemia meeting, and we're going to share some nuggets with you about that. And an interview with Dr. Baba Anusa. Yeah, we're also going to include a little bit about what's buzzing on social media. We'll hit our warriors with the word of the day, and then Dr. Callahan will have you finish off with explaining a landmark research trial to us. Sounds good. Let's get to it. All right. All right, so the next segment is our weekly What's Happening Now segment, where Amar tells us what's new in social media on the the Twitter or the Facebook or any of his TikToks. um, (laughs) So what's happening? What's happening now, Amar? There's always so much happening on social media, and it's always happening in so much volume that it's almost difficult to to figure out what I want to talk about. But I think today is... Uh, an opportunity for us to talk about one that I see over and over and over again. It's a question that I see mostly on Facebook. And and I'll see people ask questions like, my doctor wants to start me on hydroxyurea. Should I be on hydroxyurea? And then within minutes, hours, they've compiled 50, 100, 200 comments with just anecdotal opinions on what has happened in their story with hydroxyurea. And me and you know that a a patient with sickle cell disease can have a very different journey with hydroxyurea. Yeah, no, this is a great frustration to me. You know, when hydroxyurea first came out, it was a chemo drug, and they were using it to treat um, myelodysplastic syndromes and old people who were very sick. And I think it became associated with that. And old people who are very sick have side effects from drugs, and, and it got labeled. And then I think, you know, 20 years ago, we started studying the sickle cell, and it's a great drug for sickle cell. It's not perfect. It doesn't make everything better. Any drug has side effects, but it's the best thing we have. And it's so frustrating to hear really a lot of misinformation about hydroxyurea and and patients really not wanting to take a medicine that would really help them for reasons that just aren't true. For sure. And on the sort of on the opposite side of that coin, I feel like there certainly are patients who have had side effects that make life difficult or make it challenging. They've had abdominal discomfort. They've had hair loss, hair thinning, skin pigmentation. And, and, and I understand that, you know, or, or pa- patients who have had their counts drop, their hemoglobin drops, their white blood cell count drops, their platelets drop. Those patients certainly uh, exist. And, and, and just because it's true for them doesn't mean it'll be true for everybody. So often, often I think about what, what are we doing wrong as physicians that we're not able to get the message across in in an effective I, way. I've thought about that because I I feel like in um, almost any disease state where you're using a medication, you don't have these conversations. You say, "Oh, you got an ear infection. Here's amoxicillin." You don't say, "Here's the side effects of amoxicillin." Certain percentage of people have a rash, and some people have allergies, and it can cause Clostridium difficile, and uh, you know. Those are all true of yeah. amoxicillin, but amoxicillin is a safe drug and it's good for ear infections. So we say you should be on amoxicillin. Yeah. I feel like with hydroxyurea, we've always started with, 
well, you know, it can cause GI discomfort and it can cause nail bed changes and even sometimes things that aren't true. So, I mean, we have big studies that show that it doesn't increase your risk of cancer. Um, there are side effects of hydroxyurea. I, I don't want anybody to perceive that there aren't, but they're very mild. Most patients do very, very well with it. I think, you know, there might be exceptional cases, like if you're a, a young man and you want to have a family, hydroxyurea lowers your sperm count and you should maybe fact. not be on hydroxyurea right, that's during that time. So I, I'm not saying it's for everybody, but right. uh, it's it's a good drug. Yeah. It would, like you said, it'll change the course of sickle cell disease for a lot of our patients. And you know, frankly, a lot of this misinformation and the, and the way we're approaching it, like you said, you know, we're coming in like you could do this or you could not do this. And here are all the reasons you might not want to do this. And I feel like we don't do that in other in other disease states or other spaces. We come in and we say, this is a good drug for you. These are, you know, this is why you should be on it. Oh, here's some side effects. I mean, you listen to any TV show, the commercial comes on for a drug and the commercial's five seconds and then there's 20 seconds of the potential side effects. Right, right, right. So every drug has a list of potential side effects, but most people don't get those side effects. Yeah, no, that's, and, that's and, absolutely true. I always think about how we can alter our conversations in clinic around clinical trials, new medicines. And and I, I try to always incorporate to, to the patient, like when I'm having that discussion, you know, we're scientists. And, and for us, everything is false until it's proven true. And that's how we're built to think. And and that's what these trials are for. It's to show us that the difference between this and not doing this is real. It's not by chance. And, and, and that makes us say, okay, there's some there's some meat to this, right? Um, so, so, you know, I often tell patients that they should have those same conversations with the naturopath and the chiropractor who's telling them that, you know, St. John's wort is better for their acute chest then is hydroxyurea. So so have that conversation with your with your naturopath and and tell them that okay if you're going to put my 3-year-old on St. John's wort or liquid silver where's your data? Show me show me your data on the adverse events. And even what's in those things cuz they don't have the same quality control Absolutely. that drugs have. But I I think you know that definitely true I mean we do these studies and and it's important to have rigorous studies and um you know when we consent people for studies. We go into great details about everything. But hydroxyurea has been through those studies, been sure. through lots of those studies, been through uh, 30 years of those studies. For sure. It's been around for a long time. We have a lot of personal experience with it. We see, you know, people who were having four, five, six, seven pain episodes a year who were really having trouble uh, maintaining a job or missing school or um really doing terribly and, and go on hydroxyurea and, and do a lot better. It's not perfect. You can still have pain episodes. You can still have acute chest, but it really is a drug that improves symptoms and probably improves your overall health and, and lengthens your life. For sure. And, I, you know, I had a conversation with Leon Shalolo. Thanks for giving me this opportunity to present you the REACH study. Who was the primary investigator for the REACH trial. Which was looking at hydroxyurea in this cohort in sub-Saharan Africa. In Angola, DRC, Kenya, and Uganda. And I'll always remember this one story that he told me. I asked him, what's the most striking thing that happened to you in this trial? And he said, I had a mom call me after her daughter had been on hydroxyurea for four months. And she said, Dr. Shilolo, 
I think you were wrong about her having sickle cell disease because she hasn't missed any school. She's not having any pain. She's a different kid. Are you sure that she had sickle cell disease to begin with? And that story sort of stuck with me in, in, in so many ways. I, I repeat it to, to patients in clinic often, but I want to digress just for a second here. And I want to tell you that I feel like, I feel like I'm in a judgment free zone here. So I feel like I can be honest with you. I'm pretty loose and friendly when patients tell me about natural supplements. So I get this a lot. I, I have patients come in so frequently telling me that they're on this, that, and the other, the new fad, alkaline water, you know, whatever it is. I tell them, make sure you don't spend too much money on it. Yeah, right. Like that's like the major side effect is, is certainly they're going to they're gonna I, empty out their wallet. I, I think the major side effect is people who sell those things lying. That seems to be 100%. Right. But from a patient perspective, some of them are, are not safe, but I, I think that's a minority. Most of them, I think, are, are just an uh, expensive way to recycle Absolutely. vitamins. And like sometimes you, sometimes you don't need a study. When I'm having a cold, I drink a couple glasses of orange juice, and that helps me. There's no study to support that. There's no evidence. I was going to use chicken noodle soup, but then I looked it up, and there actually is evidence on chicken noodle soup changing how your white blood cells move. Does it work? Apparently, yes, it makes them better at their job. So chicken noodle soup. Was right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So sometimes, I mean. What about Verner's? <laughs> only if you're from Detroit. Sometimes you certainly can have these natural type remedies that may actually help, right? There may be these little things that water, water, right? Nothing more natural than water, right? And I don't need to, we don't need a study to tell us that more water in a warrior is better. So, so I feel like um, in clinic, at least when I have these conversations, I feel like the um, dynamic changes a little bit when patients feel like their doctor is a little bit more receptive to what they're doing, because in all honesty, we are the clinical experts, but 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 they're living the everyday, right? And and, and if 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 for them taking chlorophyll is something that makes them uh, feel better day to day, or makes them feel like they're doing something for their disease, I think it's reasonable. But do it with hydroxyurea. Always with hydroxyurea. All right, Warriors, it's uh, time for my favorite segment, Warrior Word of the Day. And mostly that's because Dr. Mike does most of the work during this segment. (laughs) So, Dr. Mike, I got a good one for you today. I think that this is a word that we use frequently and we hear used frequently incorrectly. I'll tell you the context in which I hear it frequently used wrong um, once I tell you what it is, but I'm going to keep you in suspense for a little bit longer. So the word that um, we're going to discuss at length today is one that comes up with every complete blood count that's drawn in clinic that a warrior probably sees once or twice a month and has a general idea of what theirs is when their CBC comes back. They know what their baseline is. And it's a term that we use to classify basically how severe their disease may be. So so because of that, I think it's a really important word to have a good handle on if you're a patient with sickle cell disease. So the word for today is hemoglobin. It it took me at least half that riddle to figure it out. (laughs) All right. Um, So hemoglobin, again, it it, I think sounds like a simple word that we throw around a lot, Um, but it it does have multiple, multiple meanings and it's, it's complicated. So um, I think sometimes we'll say, what's your hemoglobin? And when we say that, we mean 
what is the concentration of hemoglobin in your blood. Um, so we do a blood count. Hemoglobin itself is a protein that is made in our bone marrow in cells that become red blood cells. And sometimes we abbreviate it HB or HGB. Every animal has uh, hemoglobin and it delivers oxygen from the lungs or in fish from the gills to the tissue. So it, it picks up oxygen and, and drops it off at the tissues. Hemoglobin makes up about 96% of the protein in, in the red blood cells and more than half of the protein in the blood. So it's, it's a very common, very important protein. And it, it has some really special properties that allow it to do its job. So it, it has iron in it mm -hmm. in a, a little part of it called a porphyrin and the iron is able to attach to oxygen. So it, it picks up oxygen and hemoglobin in, uh, Adult people, we usually call hemoglobin A. Um, that's the most common common form. And it's made up of four parts, two alpha parts and two beta parts. And each of those has its own iron on it, and each of those can pick up an oxygen. And those four parts work together. So they can be in two different states we call taut or relaxed. And when they are uh, pick up oxygen, they want to pick up more oxygen. They relax and they pick up more oxygen. And when they drop off oxygen, they get stiffer and they drop off more oxygen. And that helps us a lot because it, it allows us to pick up a lot of oxygen when there's a lot of oxygen around, like in the lungs. And then when you get out to the tissues and you're dropping off oxygen, you can drop off more of it. So it's a really clever uh, molecule that way. Hemoglobin is, is really important for sickle cell warriors because people with sickle cell have a mutation in the hemoglobin. So the hemoglobin is made up of those two parts, the alphas and the betas. That's and right. The alphas have 141 little amino acids and uh, that, that makes up the protein. And the betas have 146 and just one of them has changed if you have sickle cell. Just the sixth amino acid on the beta chain is changed from a glutamic acid to a valine. Isn't that just amazing? It, it, it is amazing. And, it, you know, it was the first molecularly characterized disease because there's so much hemoglobin, you could get lots of samples of it and, and test it. So in 1949, uh, Linus Pauling did a, a hemoglobin electrophoresis and figured out the exact problem that was wrong. And here we are 70 years later still trying to figure out what to do about it. Can I throw some trivia your way? Yeah. Do you know where where he gave that first lecture? I do. Well, I sort of do. I know it was in Detroit. It I don't was. Know where. Right here in Detroit. Yeah. 1949, American Physiology Society. We digress. Sorry. Go ahead. No, continue. Okay. Back, back to hemoglobin. Um, so in, in addition to delivering oxygen, hemoglobin also picks up carbon dioxide and, and brings it back to get rid of it as sort of waste. When hemoglobin binds to oxygen, it turns red. So we think of blood as being red, but when it drops off that oxygen, it changes shape a little bit, the iron changes charge, and it becomes bluish. So that's why our, our veins are blue and we get that, that bluish color to our blood. Um, so hemoglobin is why blood is red and, and why uh, it turns blue. So I'm going to tell you about ways I hear this word being misused. These may or may not be based on fictional characters. I've heard... When a hemoglobin is low in a patient, I've heard them tell me, my doctor told me my iron is low. True or false? Mm, could go either way. So um, so I, I've been talking about the molecule hemoglobin, but when we use it in the clinic, often what we're talking about is the concentration of that molecule in your blood. 
And so we usually report that out in grams per deciliter. So a deciliter is 100 milliliters. It's like a little bit over three ounces of blood. So if you can picture three ounces of blood, would normally have in an adult woman 12 grams of hemoglobin or about a half an ounce, or in a man, maybe 18 grams of hemoglobin. So um, we report your hemoglobin in how many grams of hemoglobin there is in that deciliter. So uh, normal is maybe 12 to 18. In people with sickle cell disease, because their red blood cells are breaking down, the, the concentration gets lower. So they have less hemoglobin in that, you know, three ounces of blood. Um, so they might have seven grams of hemoglobin. So we would say your hemoglobin is seven. So what we mean there is the concentration of your hemoglobin is seven grams per deciliter, which is a lot lower than than normal. And we and we know that people who have really low hemoglobins often have uh, more complications of the disease. Sometimes we have to transfuse them. So it's an important number to know. You can have a low hemoglobin for a lot of reasons. So uh, if you just cut yourself open and let out a lot of blood, it'll take a little while for the the fluid to build back up, but eventually your your hemoglobin will be much less of your blood after that because your body won't be able to make new hemoglobin. It'll just fill it up with kind of a water fluid. So the concentration will go down and your hemoglobin will go down. You can also have low hemoglobin because you can't make blood. And, and the most common reason for that um, worldwide is you're iron deficient. You don't have enough iron. Each one of those heme molecules needs an iron. And if you don't have it, you can't, you can't make hemoglobin. So that being the most common reason to have a low hemoglobin, people often get the two confused. So if you don't have iron, you'll have a low hemoglobin. But just because you have a low hemoglobin doesn't mean you don't have iron. I like that. Now, the other context that this often comes up in is the different types of hemoglobin, because there's not just one type of hemoglobin, especially in sickle cell disease. We have really, I mean, three important types where you have hemoglobin A, hemoglobin F, and hemoglobin S. And, and we, we measure that in sickle cell patients frequently for a variety of reasons. What's the difference between those three types of hemoglobin? Yeah, so hemoglobin is really complicated. So um, <laughs> when... when a normal adult has the two alphas and two betas, and we call that hemoglobin A. But throughout development, you have different kinds of hemoglobin, and, and it's very clever. So when you're in utero, especially the later part, babies make a kind of hemoglobin called fetal hemoglobin, I guess because they're fetuses, we call it fetal hemoglobin. That makes and sense. The, the fetal hemoglobin is a little different than the adult hemoglobin. And one thing it does is holds on to oxygen a little tighter. So it steals the oxygen from mom. So the uh, mom's oxygen, the mom's hemoglobin goes through the placenta and it comes up near the hemoglobin from the baby. And the mom's oxygen, mom's hemoglobin drops off the oxygen. The baby's <coughs> hemoglobin steals it and takes it to the baby. You need that fetal hemoglobin when you're a baby. As you get born and you're breathing oxygen, you switch over to adult hemoglobin. And then you have the alphas and betas. And if you have sickle cell, that's when it starts to happen. As you switch over to your adult hemoglobin, you're starting to make sickle hemoglobin and, and your fetal hemoglobin goes away. And that usually happens over about the first six months of life. What I like to explain to warriors sometimes is I give them an analogy of Legos. So I tell them that if sickle hemoglobin is Lego brand Lego that's sticking together, and as in a bucket, when, when they have more fetal hemoglobin, it's like you got the dollar store brand of Legos and threw it into that bucket, and it becomes harder to find the Legos that match up and connect easily. And it seems to click with them sometimes. All right. 
I, yeah, that's just that's one that I'll you might want to store that. away yeah, for the future. I'll have to try that. But going back to the the 1970s, there was a comprehensive sickle cell study group, and they found people who had high fetal hemoglobins did really well. They uh, tended to have less complications. So that fetal hemoglobin <coughs> not only doesn't sickle, it gets in the way of of the sickle hemoglobin um, lining up and forming those rods and stops sickling. So that's hemoglobin S and hemoglobin F. There's also hemoglobin A2, which which is a, another normal variant, usually makes up 1% or 2% of your blood. And then if you have other mutations, we might say you have hemoglobin C if you right. have the C mutation, or hemoglobin D if you have the D mutation. And A2, the hemoglobin A2 might come up in some of our warriors who have beta thalassemia plus in addition to their sickle mutation. Dr. Zadie likes to get genetic testing on everybody, but that, that's how I know that That is have, true. That is uh, one of my many faults. Thalassemia. Um, is, is you have a little high A2. Hi, Cheat Codes listener, producer Patrick here. Recently, doctors Mike and Amar attended ASCAT, the annual sickle cell and thalassemia meeting in London, England, where they had a chance to snag a few minutes with the chair of the meeting, Dr. Baba Anusa from the Evelina Children's Hospital in London, to learn a bit more about what makes ASCAT's meeting unique and what stood out in 2019. Just a heads up, this interview was unplanned, so the audio is a little rough, but given that Dr. Anusa is a world-renowned sickle cell expert, we still wanted to deliver this to you. So enjoy it, and Drs. Mike and Amar will be back on the other side to close out the episode with the Red Blood Cell Research Review. Thanks. We have a special guest today. We are broadcasting from the annual sickle cell and thalassemia meeting in London, ASCAT. And we're very excited to be here with the chairman of the meeting, Dr. Baba Anusa from Eveline Children's Hospital in Guys and Thomas in London. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Most of my work is actually for sickle cell disease, and about 99% of my time is on sickle cell disease. And I have been at Guys and St. Thomas's uh, since 2002. And Guys and St. Thomas's Hospital is... Uh, is uh, a hospital that is linked with King's College London and the other two hospitals that are linked with King's College London are King's College Hospital and another hospital. I lead the sickle cell and thalassemia service uh, which is um, the children's hospital uh, called Evelina Children's Hospital. So Evelina Children's Hospital it is the pediatric uh, part of Guys and St. Thomas's Hospital and we are located at the St. Thomas's site and St. Thomas's site is the hospital that is within central London are just overlooking the House of Parliament. We, we're really proud of the history of our children's hospital in Detroit. We say it's the third oldest children's hospital in the United States. But I was reading a little bit about St. Thomas. It goes back to the 1100s and uh, with a little break because Henry VIII shut it down for a while. I mean, just an amazing <laughs> history in Hodgkin and... Uh, Braxton Hicks and Addison. All, all, all sorts of history. So it's, uh, yeah, yes. it's really nice to be there. And that is very interesting because um, they also the name Evelina has a reason for it. Uh, it was established about 150 years ago, and, and that was uh, because of a Rothschild um, uh, wife, which was named after his wife. So, uh, and, and it initially started as Evelina's hospital school. So even the school is called also Evelina's school. Wonderful. Wow. So, so, so Dr. Nusa, I'm, uh, I'm very uh, curious about sort of how this meeting came into fruition initially. What was, what drove you to saying, we need to connect Europe, 
America and, and Africa and the Middle East to come together for sickle cell disease? What drove it? When did this all start? So the um, ASCAT, which is the Academy for Sickle Cell and Thalassemia, uh, the conference, which is now in the 14th year, just finished the 14th year, uh, started in 2006. And the reason why we actually started that, uh, I started that was uh, mainly to actually reach out and provide education, especially for nurses and for doctors, particularly those who are new in the service, so that they have opportunity to listen to the update in terms of research and, and, and sort, of, sort of things. Previously, one of my colleagues, Dr. Ivanyo Opala, he was also running the adult service. Uh, he had run a similar program. And when he left the hospital, uh, after a hiatus of about two years, I then began this program. The initial aim, educate, update, and help people to really connect with sexual services. And then uh, in the initial years, I have one keynote speaker. Mm -hmm. And actually, sometimes that keynote speaker can come from Europe or might come from the US. Um, and so a few people like Janet Kutaski, the, the one at Children's mm -hmm. Hospital Philadelphia, mm -hmm. Uh, Charles Queen, Marshall mm -hmm. Treadwell mm -hmm. have actually been keynote speakers in, in, in different years. So I had one keynote speaker. Wonderful. Uh, so from one keynote speaker, now we have like almost 40 uh, faculty members mm -hmm. coming from the US, Middle East, Africa, and all over the world. Um, so that is how it's grown. But one of the things that we always have always tried to kind of keep focus is it provides opportunity for uh, a young faculty, aspiring faculty, and also even fellows who can showcase their work. And uh, showcase their work either through abstracts, uh, either posters or oral presentation, or actually just get them to present. Because normally when you go to most sickle cell or thalassemia conferences, you will find those people who are very much established, uh, or the normal faculty that will be the same faculty in every meeting. We want to break that cycle so that we give young people um, opportunity to actually kind of present their work, but also give opportunity to non-hematologists and non-pediatricians uh, in terms of psychologists, therapists, who also present their work. So you could see a kind of a combination of that. That's wonderful. And, and there was a great mix of that. I mean, I, I think posters on all sorts of different topics. Yeah. And it's a really nice size meeting, so you can really interact with people yes. in different disciplines, young people, old people. And it was great. Those plenaries were mostly young people with, with mm. nice projects. So. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we want to do is to make sure that um, most people that have heard about, for example, heard about this person. So, okay, I've been reading about somebody like Russell Ware, and then I want to give them an opportunity to actually interact with them. Sure. And so for if I don't know what he came for the dinner yesterday, okay. it's just so that really there's a greater interaction between. Um, people who are really getting into the field, motivate them right. and say actually they can do uh, things themselves. So by getting in touch with those who have really accomplished in terms of their work, uh, then it gives them a motivation. But also it helps them to, uh, to get some advice and some, 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 some support as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the things that's very underrated is um, you know, people, um, junior people sometimes don't get into the right environment to get them excited about sickle cell. Yeah. And a meeting like this really can change that completely. It can change your entire perspective. I, uh, I, I think for me, uh, this meeting was especially important because it was, it was very inspirational <laughs> to hear about um, what people are doing in places with far less resources than yeah. we have. Um, 
and, and how much success they're having. Um, it's, it's very inspirational to hear those types of stories. Yes, yeah. so that's very true because one of the other aspects that we really want to achieve is to support capacity building. Um, capacity building, particularly when we talk about the mortality and the outcome of disease, I'm say people in high-income countries will survive, say, we'll say 95 will survive into adult life, and then when we go back to um, where the majority of patients live, we say actually less than 50% will survive beyond the age of 10. So we actually think that if we can influence policymakers, clinicians, and services, but also build capacity in terms of developing um, their laboratory skills and everything, uh, we think that that would really kind of uh, lead to significant impact. But also, we want to encourage not-South collaboration and also encourage South-South collaboration. I mean, uh, people from low and middle-income countries interacting with those who are from high-income countries. And people like myself, for example, uh, people in the diaspora, we also have uh, an opportunity to actually go back and contribute to our own countries of origin. So you're, you're originally from Nigeria? I'm Nigerian. I'm Nigerian. So, um, yeah, so, uh, I, but I also, uh, have my project, my current project, which is the European funded project. This is, is called, Ar- Arise? Ar- Arise, yes, Arise. So the website is ariseinitiative.org. Um, so the Arise um, is a European funded project and it's a four year project. Uh, it involves two African countries, Nigeria and Kenya, but also involves Lebanon but also gives opportunity for people from the U- Europe to actually go to MUIC uh, Chicago uh, to undertake uh, some work. So one of the things is that if somebody goes to Chicago, they actually could go to other institutions in the US, but their posting will be to Chicago, and then they can really take tasks that will help them achieve those goals. But this is to really build individual capacity. That's great, yeah, we can all learn from each other and oh, oh, raise the bar. Yeah, so uh, for example, the US is very good in terms of implementation, so I'm, want to learn about implementation science and we're also very good in doing some community training uh, for community workers we want to learn from their own their own kind of practices but we want to, when you learn then we go back to africa and see exactly what happens in africa and we try and kind of transmit both aspects but also we have um, training programs that will invite people from different parts of the world to actually go to some of the african countries so we've just been to nigeria on september 11 to the 13th and we hope to probably go to Kenya as well. Wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. You know, Britain and, uh, of course, Africa. Um, I, I, I'm a big fan of social media, so mm-hmm. I posted that on social media. And, and somebody from the United States, they, uh, they wrote a very interesting comment under there. They wrote, it's amazing that we are all sickle cell warriors. We're connected by blood. Oh, wow. And uh, they were so <laughs> moved by yeah. uh, just hearing about the 10 ideas that this pa- panel in you know at this meeting had the patient panel yeah i think this is a very unique way to also connect the individuals with sickle cell disease that are separated by oceans you know they're all having the same battle yeah um but they they just they don't have the opportunity to meet each other to connect and this is a nice way for that to happen yeah so initially we wanted to start the first one at the european hematology association meeting in june and it didn't happen so I said, okay, let's come and use this opportunity for this conference and let it happen. But the major emphasis was actually to get the European patients together so that they can have a voice, a voice for sickle cell disease, because at the moment there is a voice for thalassemia, but there is no single voice for sickle cell disease. So one of, that was one of our objectives. And then we added, okay, what do patients also want about research? So because we're doing that, I said, all right, why don't we get other people from outside Europe 
to listen in and make some contribution. And that's how we got people from two patients from the US, patients from Australia, and patients from Africa, so that they can actually listen. But actually, it turned out that they actually became active participants. Yeah, that was great because you know, it in, informs what we do. We're trying to yeah. um, uh, improve care for sickle cell, but the most important thing is you know, how that impacts the patients and get their perspective is so yeah. important. So we're hoping that in the next year, um, ASCAT meeting, this program will actually go out and it will be... The website is actually scorecharity.com because it links with our work in Nigeria. Okay. So scorecharity has one word. S-C-O-R-E. S-C-O-R-E. Charity.com. It's one word. Uh, yeah, so if you go, that's, all this conference will be there. So what we're hoping to do next year, I'm working probably is going to be joined with European uh, Hematology Association and also Eurobloodnet and also Preachers Society of Hematology. Uh, so we do kind of an anniversary event together. Whether it's going to happen in June, whether it's going to happen in October, we're not sure. But the, the score, I mean, the, the ASCAD conference aimed to happen in October. We'll try and make sure that it doesn't coincide with the school holidays because the last two years that happened with the school holidays, oh and then people with young children have said to me, "Why am I doing this?" So right. we want to make sure that we give them opportunity Certainly. to participate. Certainly. But thank you for coming. Really, that was it's it, great to have you guys. It was. Um, I, I think this is going to become <laughs> yeah. a regular meeting for yes, us. This thank was you. Uh, very motivational and yeah. inspirational. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for talking. With us. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. All right, guys, we are here with Dr. Mike, who's going to break down a landmark, super important study that has changed the way that we do things all across the country and the world. I'm excited to hear about this one. Yeah, so today I'm going to talk about the STOP trial. So in clinic, kids between age 2 and 16 with uh, sickle cell, SS or S-beta-0, we do transcranial Doppler ultrasound. We sure do. TCDs. Yep. I'm going to talk today about why we do that. Okay. TCDs or transcranial Doppler ultrasounds, we use the ultrasound machine like you use to look at the baby when mom's pregnant. Yeah. Um, but we use them in a little different way. We actually measure how fast blood's flowing in the brain. So we look at the, the velocity of blood flow in the arteries and it's kind of like a hose. If you pinch a hose, the water comes out faster. Yeah, sure. In sickle cell, if you have uh, sickle cells damage the blood vessels, they get narrower, and it's like pinching a hose, the blood flows faster. And this guy who, who uh, was the first author of the study, Dr. Adams. He's um, a big deal. He is. He uh, found that if you had a velocity above 200 centimeters per second, if your blood was flowing faster than that, then you had a very high risk of having a stroke. Wow. So kids with sickle cell had about a 10 or 12% chance of having a stroke by the time they turned 21 when this when this study started. And so there, when, when kids had strokes, they would put them on transfusions to prevent a second stroke. And that started at Children's Hospital in Detroit, and it worked very well. And so this study wanted to see, could we prevent the first stroke? Could we figure out before somebody had a stroke and prevent it? So this study was called Prevention of a First Stroke by Transfusions in Children with Sickle Cell Anemia and Abnormal Results on Transcranial Doppler Ultrasound. (laughs) Let's call it STOP. The STOP trial, yeah. So this is from uh, the New England Journal of Medicine from July 1998. In this study, what they did is they they measured uh, transcranial Doppler ultrasounds on kids between age 2 and 16, and they did 3,929 of these. Whoa. And they found quite a few children who had these high velocities. And then they tried to randomize them. So they flip a coin, and some kids got transfusions and some didn't. Sure. 
Now, the problem with this study was some people didn't want to go on transfusions. So a big group dropped out, and that can cause problems for a study. So they looked at that group to make sure it wasn't biasing the study. They weren't having people drop out who would change the results. And that group looked really similar to the, to the two groups, the placebo group and the transfusion group that got randomized. And then they compared the no transfusion group to the transfusion group, and they were also pretty similar Although the transfusion group actually started out with a lower baseline hemoglobin, oh, 7.2 compared to 7.6. So they actually probably had a little higher risk of having stroke right. to begin with. And then they put the patients on, on transfusion. So 63 got randomized to transfusions, mm -hmm. and they received these transfusions um, every three to four weeks to get their sickle cell level below 30% and keep it there. And then 67 patients continued with just their regular standard treatment with no transfusions. And they had to stop the study early because the group that wasn't getting the transfusions had strokes. Um, wow. There, there they had were, to call it. They did. They had uh, 10 strokes in that group and one in the group getting transfusions. So wow. more than a 90% reduction wow. in, in um, strokes. So they said, you know, it's not, not appropriate uh, to not have these kids on transfusions. And, and that became our standard treatment. So now Absolutely. we screen everybody with ultrasounds. And if they have a high velocity, we use transfusions to prevent strokes. And it's working. Instead of 10 to 12% of kids having strokes by 21, now it's 1% or 2%. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Mike, for breaking that down for us. There you go. Straight from Dr. Mike, the STOP trial. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us for episode two of Cheat Codes, the Sickle Cell Podcast. Dr. Mike, thank you so much for all the hustle you put into this episode. Thanks. It was fun. Stay with it. Continue to live well with Sickle Cell. And share this podcast with a friend and come back and listen to the next episode. And follow us on social media at Amar Aruj one on Twitter. <laughs> You'll get it right eventually. At Amar Aruj Sadie. <laughs> share this podcast with somebody who could learn about sickle cell disease. Follow us on social media. Right, Dr. Mike? Yeah, follow us on Twitter. Sounds good. All right, guys. See you on the next episode. <laughs>